0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. America, and not just the United States, has been preoccupied with race from the beginning. And that obsession is not just felt in our institutions and communities for people of mixed race, that tension reaches deep into their homes and their families and their lives.
1: Because there is a commitment to a narrative of colorblindness and racial democracy, what you have is people who don't want to talk about racism. In these people's eyes, to even talk about race or racism is to be divisive.
0: More from the new book, American Negra, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The story of being mixed race in America depends a lot on who's telling it. For some, it's a tragic tale of being caught between two worlds and not feeling comfortable in either one. For others, it's the ultimate expression of the American ideal. People of different backgrounds and experiences coming together and sharing the best of their cultures with their children and through their children. But the truth is almost always more complicated, and it's rarely black and white. Journalist Natasha Alford adds a new chapter to this uniquely American story and her new memoir, *American Negra. In it, she shares her own story of growing up black and Puerto Rican in a community that often pressured her to choose one or the other. She shares moments of pride, but also tension in coming to her own understanding of who she is and how her racial experience affected the way she approaches journalism. Natasha Alford is also the Vice President of Digital Content and an anchor at The Grio. Natasha Alford, welcome to A Word.
1: Jason, it is an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: The opening lines of your book are so beautiful. I'm hoping you can start off by reading them. Just read the opening to us.
1: It would be my pleasure. I am the daughter of Northern Migrations, a love child of American dreaming, clashing with conquest and flight sending two populations who should have been basking in the suns of southern states and the heat of Caribbean islands to a new, cold, snowy land they would call home, upstate New
0: York. You talk a lot in this memoir about your heritage, your father's heritage, your mother's heritage, and how your understandings of heritage evolve. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents and sort of where you fall sort of culturally and and what your place is sort of in your extended family?
1: Yes, so I am an only child, um, which means that when I look at my parents' You know, I, I don't have anyone else to immediately look to to understand who I am. Being a product of an African-American household and a Puerto Rican household, I'm really a reflection of American history, right? African-Americans, we migrated through the Great Migration, many of us, six million of us, to the North. And similarly, Puerto Ricans uh, loaded, you know, planes and flew from Puerto Rico to the North as a part of policy efforts like like Operation Bootstrap. And the point was to exploit them for cheap labor. But also many of them were looking for opportunity, uh, economic opportunity that they weren't getting on the island. And so I wanted to tell a story about how these two groups often end up in the same neighborhoods, in the same cities, right? We're living right next to each other and what it's like to be a product of both of them. As someone who I consider myself actually multi-ethnic, the biracial label is one that i I wrestle with because I'm a black woman, right? I, I don't see myself as anything other than being a black woman. Uh, although I am a multi-ethnic Black woman. So ending up in this place where I am between both worlds, I'm witness to conversations on both sides. And I see how African Americans often talk about Latinos, that large umbrella term that we use. And I also see how uh, Latinos of many different backgrounds think about racism and race and blackness. And so I wanted to write a book that uh, gave a window into both worlds, but also challenged us to have more nuance in these conversations.
0: A lot of times when we get these sort of biographies from black writers, we're we're used to two things, right? We're used to, a lot of times it has to do with the South. And a lot of times it's a story of like, I had to get the hell out of where I was from, right? It was dangerous. It was Duck down Avenue. There were shots and everything else like that. I love how in your book, you talk about growing up in Syracuse. And there's this great line where you say, you know, Syracuse is the forgotten city in New York, right? Like everybody knows New York City. People know Buffalo. I'm on my way to Niagara Falls. They got the bills. They got the wings. But it's this sort of forgotten, overlooked, but still a major city in New York. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Syracuse and how that impacted your identity. Because obviously the Puerto Rican population and the African-American population in Syracuse That's a different experience than growing up in new york that's a different experience than growing up in dc and growing up in atlanta
1: when you grow up upstate you are uh, often in the shadow of big cities like new york city everyone cares about the big apple and um we are the northern rust belt we are the area where factories came and they they promised economic prosperity and people lived these middle-class lives And then the factories left and they went overseas and we are left with crumbling buildings right, and uh, high concentrations of poverty. And so I wanted to shed a light on life in upstate New York and other places because it's just it's a microcosm of what's happening across America. This discontent that we see with whether the American dream is real is very much tied to the economy. And so growing up in Syracuse, it's a tale of two cities. People know us for the basketball team right? Carmelo Anthony, you know, Syracuse University, this um, exceptional private institution of higher education. But if you go on the other side of the highway, right, that I-81 highway that goes directly through the city, you will find some of the highest concentrations of poverty in the country, African-American poverty and Hispanic, if you use that term, poverty, and so I also wanted to understand why, why that was the case. And so part of what this book does is try to provide some historical context for the way that, um, you know, segregation worked in the north to create these conditions and why we're still wrestling with them today.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the new book, America Negra. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at aword@slate.com. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the new memoir, American Negra, with author and journalist Natasha Alford. It's interesting. So something to reflect on is the way you felt pressure to take sides when it came to race. Where do you think that pressure came from? What were those push and pulls like?
1: Well, I think it's a reflection of geography. Because I often say that if I grew up in New York City, me being African-American, Puerto Rican probably wouldn't be a big deal, right? It's just so normal because this is a a city of many ethnicities. We see blackness in many different forms in New York City. So people are exposed to that. But there was an element of upstate New York that old school segregation, right? There's black and there is white. And so people kind of don't know where to place you. And when it came to being part of the Latino community upstate, uh, Latinos definitely have a history in upstate New York and particularly Puerto Ricans. Uh, it's a strong community, uh, very close-knit community. Uh, but even Puerto Ricans have struggled in upstate because they don't know always where they fit, right? I mean, if you're not a white Puerto Rican that has blonde hair and blue eyes, there are people that ask you, well, what are you? And so me being African American in Puerto Rican, people could sort of pick up on me being different. Uh, I'd get questions about my hair texture, you know, questions about my facial features, which some people found to be unique. And the question I would always get was, do you speak Spanish? So language is another huge theme in this book and how language contributes to our understanding of culture, ethnicity, and race. And so because I was not fluent in Spanish, when it came to choosing it was much easier to be associated with and to be seen as african american or black american because i spoke english very well i didn't have an accent right i'm a you know straight a student and so people perceived me as oh she's a black girl right she's a black girl maybe she has a spanish mom but clearly she's black she's brown And it was easier to assimilate in that way. When I encountered um, Latinos, whether they were Puerto Rican or from other communities, uh, there was a bit of... uh assumption. Really, they too assumed that I was African American. And so I didn't want to, at certain phases of my life, have to explain or prove to them what I was. I didn't want to be asked, you know, well, how well do you speak Spanish? And can you cook this? Or can you cook that? It felt like there was a litmus test, so to speak. And so uh, I I kind of Shunned having to prove that like some of that is pride, right? Some of that is probably tied to shame, too. There's there's a lot of shame uh, around not being able to speak Spanish. And so that is what happens. You mix geography with these uh, sort of authenticity tests that we often do in America and so it was much easier for me to just, you know, be a part of the African-American community, be a part of the Black community at large. And that was home. Now, this book is about making space for the fullness of my identity, right? I, I It's not a journey of begging for acceptance. It's a journey of accepting who I am and the way that both sides influence me. And also saying, like, let's talk about the Black Puerto Ricans, right? Because- even in the way that we compare, we say black and Puerto Rican, well, they are black Puerto Ricans. So what does it mean to equate blackness, right, and Puerto Ricanness as if it is a race? Puerto Rican is not a race. They're people of, you know, who fall all along the spectrum in terms of phenotype, hair texture, skin color. So um that is something that we do often in America. We kind of mix nationality, ethnicity, and race. And this book makes the case that when we separate those things, uh, we can better understand people's identities and histories.
0: You're the producer and host of the 2020 Amazon Prime video documentary, Afro Latinx Revolution, Puerto Rico. It's an exploration of your roots in Puerto Rico. Here's a clip.
1: Latino, we are too Latin to be black, but we are too black to be Latino. So for us, it's very hard
0: you're really frank about anti-blackness in the Latino community. And it's interesting because that conversation has just started to creep into public discourse, right? Talk a little bit about your experiences with anti-blackness within the Latino community. You know, how would you differentiate anti-blackness or do you make a differentiation between sort of anti-blackness and just American racism?
1: Here's what's so dangerous about anti-blackness in the Latino community. Because there is a commitment to a narrative of colorblindness and racial democracy, what you have is people who don't want to talk about racism and, in fact, uh, use mixedness and use close association right with Black people to deny the existence of racism. And so through denial, you erase people's experiences. In these people's eyes, to even talk about race or racism is to be divisive, the same way that you... We'll hear uh, a lot of white folks in the U.S. say, oh, you guys are race baiters. You're pulling the race card every time you want to talk about race. Sometimes you will find that in the Latino community, people who are saying we don't have problems with race. But what it really is, is that you have silenced black Latino communities, right? You've taken them out of media They are not the main characters in your TV shows or your news anchors. They are not celebrated when you talk about, you know, who are your important influential historical figures, or they're marginalized to be the sort of culture creators. Oh, you know, Afro-Latinos gave us drums and they gave us culture, right? It's this sort of folkloric appreciation that is still marginalizing. And then when you look at data, When you look at the realities of economic opportunity, what jobs go to certain people, police brutality, guess what? It's very similar to what we see in the U.S. with racism, right? It's black people being on the margins. But what's different is that because many of these communities say that they are colorblind, um, you can't really engage because this the, the narrative silences you from the beginning, right? So I wanted to, to bring light to this because I do think there is a movement of people who are fighting this. Um, I, I do think that there are Latinos who do want to end racism and who've seen it in their families and who have experienced it. Um, and we cannot build effective coalitions politically. We're, ta- we're looking at an election. You're not going to build those coalitions until you root out the racism until you root out those things that will keep us separate. Because look at what happened with LA and the city council audio tape that leaked. There was some serious anti blackness going on. And this is from two communities that, you know, technically should be allies, right? You should be working together because you're both marginalized. You're both often disrespected in the context of the United States. But you see these particular Latino city council members trying to climb up the social cast by stepping on the backs of black people. And so Black folks know this <laughs> and see this, um, and it is upsetting to them. So this sense of alliance and that, you know, all people of color get along and should work together to progress in America, that is threatened and undermined when you don't address the hard topics. And so I give much respect to people who want to learn and engage. I've met, you know, Latinos who who are not Black, but who say, I want to learn more. I want to learn the history. I want to understand you know how we root out racism and so i i encourage those people to to come in and to learn and to listen because too often these histories have been completely erased and silenced for the sake of comfort
0: you talk a lot about sort of the whole process of getting into Harvard. And when you talked about meeting Harvard alumni and and meeting someone who had graduated from Harvard in 1936, and, and then and then getting in and having to explain to your parents what that meant, and then going to the school and starting off two weeks early cleaning bathrooms and doing maintenance on campus before you got there, talk a little bit about how your perception of your black identity, your latina identity, talk a little bit of how that was affected at harvard.
1: harvard was where i came to understand the power of class in america in, in a way that i truly had understood before. Um, and also just the vastness of the Black diaspora. Growing up in Syracuse, we obviously knew you grew up in the city. There were Black folks in the suburbs, right? They had a couple cars in the garage. Maybe they went to private school, you know, but they still seemed like somewhat accessible. Harvard was really when I understood that they were like wealthy Black people. There were, you know, low income Black folks. I mean, we had ev- anyone you could imagine was there. It was beautiful, though, because we really were like a strong, united community. There was something about that place, that institution, the heaviness of the Harvard legacy and sort of the pressure that comes with you being the Black successful you know, poster child from whatever city you came from, where everyone has great expectations of you. There's something about that that just is a unique experience. And so we came together. We were united more often than not, despite our differences. But what I did see was that the Black diaspora was really represented there, which, you know, to, to some people, it makes them worry and wonder about the status of African Americans in the Ivy League because this is the first time where I go from a predominantly African American environment to seeing that African Americans are in much smaller numbers at Harvard and other, you know, Ivy League institutions and so you wonder what is it about this place are they not recruiting enough African Americans do they not see us as, you know, as smart as or worthy as our uh, black immigrant counterparts second and third generation so it raised some of those questions but also Wow, the legacy of Black people at Harvard, right? We had uh, Black folks who were at Harvard, but not of it. The three Black men who went to Harvard Medical School got in, worked hard, and were voted out by their classmates because they refused to take classes with Black people, right? And we were at the institution working as indentured servants, as as slaves, right? That's how deep our our history is, and so. What this book tries to do is not just start the conversation at affirmative action, not just say, you know, let's have this, this conversation without understanding the larger historical arc of we've always been there and we were marginalized and we have always fought to be able to, to be our full selves and, you know, to give our full talents and have them recognized. And so that's the context you need to understand what is happening for today.
0: What did you learn in the sort of microcosm of Harvard about the divisions within and I think this is important the aesthetic black community because you talk about the fact and you know obviously it's a podcast but you talk about somebody coming up to you and thinking you were Habesha thinking you were East African Ethiopian or Eritrean right um you talk about the fact that like yeah you had some black folks who didn't want to hang out with other black folks what were some of the cleavages that you saw in the black community when you were at Harvard? And, and and how do you think that affected everyone's experience there to see those kinds of cleavages?
1: Well, what I will say is that the Harvard Black community, I think, is like many Black college communities. So many people I talked to, whether you were in the Ivy League, you know, even my friends who went to the Mecca, often talk about how Howard University getting there showed them just how diverse the Black community was in every single way. And so in that sense, I think it's a universal experience of when Black people go to college, we are finally exposed to all the different, you know, forms of of, um, being Black in America and the world. I, I think that we were negotiating just what we did with our power and our privilege. And some of us were really invested in that, uh, others, maybe less so. They were you know, there to enjoy college and have a good time. But what we were wrestling with, I think, was like, again, what do we do with this unique opportunity that we have? How do we make the most of it? How do we represent a community? And so the book touches on, you know, a few of the diaspora wars as we call them. What does it mean the the representation of black immigrants or generational African Americans but also gender? Whoa, the gender dynamics at Harvard were crazy in terms of like black women versus black men. This whole Black Girl Magic era, this is new in in my opinion because at Harvard it was a very gendered experience due to institutions like final clubs, right? These wealthy private social clubs that owned multi-million dollar properties on campus that were male only. So if you were a Black man and you got into a club, you had this instant social cachet and uh, you were elevated and you had a lot of social power. But Black women were kind of marginalized. We didn't have clubs that we, you know, could be a part of in the numbers that men were able to access. And so there was this often this weird sort of the, the gender wars that we see playing out in podcasts and online right now about what are the roles of Black men in society and Black women. We saw some of that too, right? Um, so all I, I I really am trying to point out is that what I experienced in college was just a precursor to what I would see in the world. And there there are some aspects that are unique to the Harvard culture and history, but I think it's something that we all reckon with. And I hope that those of us who kind of made it through these systems, when we read a story like American Negra, it takes us back to who we used to be and everything we did to fight to get in these rooms that we are in now and that we remember the responsibility we have to look back to help and to guide the next generation through all these sometimes treacherous phases because very easily one decision could have meant a different turn in the road, right? And fortunately, there was always somebody there guiding me each step of the way, but too many of our young people fall through the cracks. They get into these institutions and they don't finish. They're unable to finish, whether it's financial, you know, personal, mental health reasons. And so it is not enough to just be successful by someone else's metric in this world. Congratulations if you are a smart Black person with a good job. What are you doing to cultivate the minds and the hearts and the will of this next generation? Because they have it much harder than we do in ways that we couldn't even imagine the pressures that they face. In this world that we are living in. So so that's my call to action. I know people are already answering the call. So it's not one that is made to to shame or blame anyone, but it's just to remind us of our power. And, and I hope people really embrace that.
0: You know, one of the things I always think this is important for context is that, you know, you were the class of 08 right? Like you were the class of 08. So Facebook started when you were in college, right? It was when Obama was elected. So it was a very unique time to be black and in college. And there was this sort of enthusiasm, right? You talk about like your whole school was excited when you got into Harvard, then you graduate. And then as you sort of go beyond graduation and you go to Northwestern and you get advanced degrees, you sort of go from being the scrappy kid from Syracuse that everybody was rooting for to the one who was like oh okay oh you think you cute you think you better you're the sellout how does that transformation happen i always think of it as the line from batman it's like if you're the hero long enough hopefully you're the hero long enough that you become the villain one day right what was it like when you found out you were the villain that you were <laughs> that somehow you were no longer the person to root for you were the person to be questioned and and considered suspect because of what you'd accomplished
1: that was hard jason that was hard. That realization that people were looking at me differently and just assuming things about me that weren't true. I mean, people hear Harvard or insert whatever school, Yale, Brown, you know, Columbia. Oh, you're a you're a Yale girl. You're a you know, you're an Ivy League, whatever. And I'd be going home and my dad would be putting on his uniform to go clean bathrooms, uh, to go serve food in the kitchen of the veterans hospital. And my mom is, you know, dealing with children, trying to teach them how to read who come from one of the poorest neighborhoods in Syracuse. And so it's like this cognitive dissonance between the life that many of your classmates are living who are more privileged and having the degree, but then realizing that materially back home, things are the same, right? And so um that is hard. A, a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, There's a lot of pressure, too, that just comes with people expecting you to have it figured out, not feeling like there's room uh, to make mistakes, right? The pressure to be perfect, the pressure to not fall and stumble so people can say, oh, look, right? Oh, she's not that smart, right? Or she's not that great or she's, she's just like anybody else. Some of that can really, really break your spirit. I I saw it as just a a wake-up call and a challenge. And people will read the book and understand the decision that I made uh, to, in some senses, walk away from the privilege that I had to try to make some sort of difference in the world. And once I realized that even that wasn't applauded, right? There were even critics of, of that decision. I said, ah, I got it. Okay. If you are living your life trying to get, you know, applause and approval at every turn, you're going to be disappointed. Um, If you're living your life trying to prove to people, look, I haven't changed or I haven't changed in ways that uh, change the core of who I am, that is a lot of expended energy (laughs) that, that might not even be fruitful. So the best thing you can do is to just live an authentic life. Um, But I, I do think it is a reminder for people to not, abandon our young people once it seems that they're successful or it seems like they've made it on the outside because they are still figuring it out, right? Um, many of them may have had access to certain institutions or jobs, but they don't know how to navigate it. And so that is part of the middle of the book is sort of the messy 20s, I call them, where I'm making a lot of mistakes at work and you know I'm having these power struggles with bosses or whoever because I'm, I'm learning some of these skills that other people, their parents tell them and pass it down to them. But nobody passed it down to me because they were like, oh, she's good. And so that's, that's what I want us to do is to kind of question some of these assumptions we have. Because what I will tell you, Jason, is that the suicide rates for young Black people right now are just unacceptable. And many of these young people, what do we hear? oh, they were so talented. Oh, they were doing great in school. They were so successful. So why, if our young people are successful and doing well on paper, are their spirits still broken, right? And do we, is that success? I don't think that's success. So so let us figure out, you know, what we're going to do as a community to, to support these young people. And that's what I'm trying to do is take the mask off of success to say what, what is true success and how do we generate that?
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more with journalist Natasha Alford about her new memoir, American Negra. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with journalist Natasha Alford about her new book, American Negra. Back in 2015, you gave a TED talk about interviewing the relatives of an accident victim and seeing more than one Confederate flag on the front of the house. And you knocked on the door and interviewed that family anyway.
1: In that moment, I realized something. It would have been much easier that day not to knock on the door, to go to a neighbor's house, to come up with an excuse for why this family wouldn't want to talk to me. But in confronting the uncomfortable in search of the truth, I could actually do justice to this man's story. And on that day, I learned what it meant have courage in reporting.
0: How did you feel about that choice then? And how would you feel about doing that now, right, in this sort of post-Trump era? Would you feel the same way?
1: That's a good question. (laughs) Well, I mean, when I had to knock on the door as a local television news reporter and I saw Confederate flags in the window of the home, I really felt like I had no choice, right? This is the job that I signed up for. Um, TV reporting is hard, man. It is not glamorous. Um, None of this work is glamorous, by the way, as as much as people make it look good. uh, The majority of these jobs are really on the ground, blue collar, like physically putting your body on the line as much as anything else. Uh, so for me, there there was no choice. That was the assignment It was to talk to this family. They'd lost a love a loved one who um, passed away in a, a car accident. And when you are in news, your job is to get the story. And so it, I was f- fearful, honestly. Um, I, I didn't know if I would be received, if I would be accepted. I didn't know if I'd be cussed out, you know. Uh, and we were far from the city. I mean, we were we were out. We were out in the boonies, as they call it. And yet courage is facing your fears. It's not the absence of fear, right? It's just, it's building a habit of facing it and deciding to move forward. And so I was grateful for the lesson of having to knock on the door anyway. Now today, I have to say, I would probably still do it, right? Like some of journalism is about being fearless. Obviously you want to be street smart, but there is something to be learned. I think from, from all people, even if it is an example of what we should not be what we should not imitate we need to understand where people misunderstand right we need to understand uh why they are persuaded by certain rhetoric uh, what drives them you know what what are their needs and wants um we have to understand people that that is just the work and so yeah i would still do it today obviously trying to be as you know, street smart as possible <laughs> going out into the field. But I, I will say that in terms of this whole moment we're in with MAGA and um, Trump supporters who are committed to him, no matter what crimes he commits, uh, no matter what ways he puts democracy in peril, some of them will not be persuaded. And so I think I've accepted that. Uh, but I do think that we cannot live in a bubble Either. These people still have power, right? They have votes (laughs) that matter. And so I think our our job is to learn as much as we possibly can about those who are persuadable and also about, you know, just what what this means about America right now.
0: I want to ask you this because we always want to make sure we get personal as we we head towards the end. You are a mother who who battled lupus, you are a mother who's 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 had health issues and still has a, a healthy baby boy. Talk a little bit about how raising a Black son has maybe changed or has it changed how you view this country or how you view your work as a as a journalist.
1: I have the greatest hopes for my son. I mean, he is just, you can't see me, but I'm smiling because he really is just the best, right? I look at this child. He's so brilliant, so smart, so perceptive. And I just try to hold on to this innocence that I know the world is going to try to take away from him. You know, he's tall for his age. He's about to be three. And we always get remarks about how tall he is. And that is more scary to me as a mom, right? Because I know that people will try to uh, adultify my baby. So I think all Black mothers, particularly of sons, we, we live with this sort of cloud that can hang over us when we think about what our sons will face um, in this country that looks at them with suspicion that has never made space for them to be boys, right? There's no boys will be boys with Black children. There's no freedom. There's no, you know, there's no room for error, right? You're always held to a higher standard. So that has been hard for me. But when I just look at everything all the the joy the talent the possibility that exists within him it motivates me to try to make this world acceptable for him imagine if our ancestors didn't do the same for us right so that is just the challenge of being black in america is that we're we're constantly contending with you know this this history that still defines us today while asserting that we have the right to live full joyful Authentic lives. So, yeah, he's my motivation to keep fighting for a better
0: world. I always like to end with sort of a a call to action. You've talked about call to action. You've talked about advice for for young men and women coming out of your environment, people who are interested in journalism. But the call to action I want to hear from you now is your advice to the industry. So often, mainstream news absolutely fumbles the ball when it comes to covering, the black perspective heading into presidential elections and they never ever get the latino perspective right. They just they just don't. They I don't they don't talk to enough people, they don't communicate with enough people, they don't even know the terms and, and definitions. As as a journalist, as an author, as a mother, as a concerned american, what advice would you give to major news organizations heading into this 2024 election? What are the mistakes you see them making that you hope and pray that they fix before everybody's in the voting booth this November?
1: Well, my beloved media industry, (laughs) listen up. (laughs) Before you use terms like Latino vote, I need you to be specific. I need you to ask what Latinos from what countries From what socioeconomic background, what faith, what ages? And similarly, before you say Black vote, (laughs) do some stories about the diversity and the difference that exists within the Black community. Not all Black folks are Democrats. Not all Black folks have the same experiences in terms of perspectives about this country or experiences trying to navigate and to experience some sort of social mobility within this country. So it is our job to not flatten people, but to to bring to life the fullness of who they are. And and I think too often for the sake of simplicity you know, it's hard to be nuanced when you have 60 second segment, (laughs) right? And we're constantly, you know, we're in this 24 seven news cycle where we have to keep up with all of these different stories. That can be hard, but it's so worth it. And you will find yourself less surprised with certain results, uh, certain poll results, um, changes that people keep predicting if you actually understand people. And so I don't think we've done enough um, understanding and so when I when I hear things like, you know, more Latinos are voting for Trump, I really want people to ask themselves how they know that and who they are talking about. And The same for our conversations about coalitions. I want us to take nothing for granted about what coalitions exist, uh, about who feels like they're in community with others. Um, because, yeah, I, I think if you look under the surface, you will see that some of those coalitions are actually quite fragile. Uh, especially when it comes to immigration right now. There's like a huge, huge conversation that I think we're not having. It's an uncomfortable one, but we have to have this conversation around immigration because that too is gonna challenge some of those coalitions you think exist when people go to the polls in November.
0: Natasha Alford is the vice president of digital content and an anchor at The Griot. Her new book, American Negra, is out on February 27th. Natasha, thank you so, so much for joining me today on A Word.
1: It was an honor to be here with you, friend. Thank you.
0: And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.